All right, by a show of hands, how many went to the boardwalk yesterday? Real quick, okay. Um, keep them up. If you went on a ride, you regret going on. All right. Uh, me too. I was inspired by my 10-year-old daughter and her friend to go on a few rides that shook my brain a little bit. I'd forgotten that I'm not as young as I used to be, and I get dizzy now when I go on a swing. Is anyone with me? Like, when did that happen? When we got on a, get on a swing and you get off and you're trying to find your sea legs a little bit. And so um, I went on a few rides yesterday and I woke up this morning and, and I needed a second cup of coffee. Is anybody with me? It was a, a few months ago. I, I, um, I turned 41 years old. And I know I don't look a day over 40. Um, but I was... Uh, Made, got up early like I normally do, made my pour-over coffee, was sitting in our backyard, and I sort of used birthdays as a, as a time to, to mark God's activity in my life. And I was sitting in my backyard, and I was just walking through this last year, and there were so many things that I was grateful for. I, I was thinking about um, my wife and just how much I love her and how grateful I am for her, my kids and the way that, that they're just flourishing and uh, this job that I have that, that most days I really love. And I was just so grateful. And I noticed something about, about myself, and you may notice it about you too. It's, and it's this, that, that when God blesses, I have a tendency to praise. God, thank you. You have been abundantly good. You have been way better than I deserve. And God, I recognize that every good and perfect gift comes from you. And as I started to just sort of walk down memory lane and the birds were sort of serenading me, they were the soundtrack to this, this path that I was walking down over the last 12 months in my mind, I, I also started to realize that it wasn't all good. That, that it was a mixture of good and, and really, really hard. Good and disappointing. I mean, in the last year, Tom Brady won another Super Bowl. I mean, not good, right? Can we all agree? Not good. The Rockies traded Nolan Arenado. Not good. No, okay. But on a more serious note, gosh, this last 12 months as a leader was the most challenging year I've experienced in about two decades of church leadership. There were nights when I was just lying in bed going, God, I don't know what to do. God, I don't know what the right, I want to do the right thing. I'm committed to doing the right thing. Just show me what it is and I'll do it. And I didn't have answers. I looked back over the last 12 years and God just started to reveal some things to me, areas that he's inviting me to grow. And I started to have this question, God, if, if during seasons of blessing I praise, what do I do during seasons of hardship? God, what do I do when the puzzle doesn't seem to fit together? And my guess is that you've experienced this too, not just in the last 12 months, but you've experienced this over the course of your life where the project you were working on just didn't quite take off, where the kids don't seem to be maturing in the way that you want. They're not here, so you can say amen, okay? When, when life just doesn't seem to be working out, I mean, and then we could go more global, right? Like, what do you do if you're living, living in a place like Lebanon right now, where the, the very fabric of, their society, fabric of their society is just disseminating beneath their feet? What do you do? 
What do you do if you're in a war-torn place in the Middle East? Uh, what do you do? Like, in blessing, we praise. But what do we do when life gets really, really difficult? How do we fight for the health of our soul when God feels silent? When it feels like he's abandoned us. When it, it just, that visceral sense starts to rise up in us, God, where are you? What do we do then? Well, would you open with me to Acts chapter 16? Because I think the early church is going to give us a, a, a snapshot, a picture of what we do when we encounter seasons of hardship. Let me give you a little bit of context as you're turning there. Acts chapter 16, Paul is on his second missionary journey. He met Timothy in Acts chapter 16 verse 1, and Timothy becomes his protege and his traveling companion in this season of the ministry together. And in Acts chapter 16 verse 5, it says, so the churches were strengthened in faith and they increased in numbers daily. I love that passage. As someone who likes progress, who likes to see it going up and to the right, I've got Acts chapter 16, verse 5 tattooed on my back, baby. I love that passage. And they were led by God. See, Paul was divinely, if you go back and read the very beginning of Acts chapter 16, you'll see that Paul wanted to go and share the good news of the gospel in Asia, and God shut the door, and he divinely led him to go into Macedonia. Paul travels into Macedonia. He shares the good news of Jesus with Lydia. She becomes one of the first converts and leaders in the church in Philippi. And things are going so well for Paul. He is seeing God's hand of blessing on his ministry and on his life. And let's pick up the story in verse 16 of Acts chapter 16. Are you there? That's more than I used to get online, so I'm going with it. Here we go. As we were going to the place of prayer, now just a quick time out. Um, Philippi was a Roman colony, and most of the time when Paul went to a new city, he would find the Jewish synagogue there. He would start to preach there, and the, the message of the good news would then ripple out from the synagogue. But being a Roman colony, Philippi didn't have a synagogue. They had this place of prayer that was outside of the city, and so that's where Paul begins to minister. When we were at the place of prayer, we, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination, and she brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. In the Greek, it says literally that she had a python spirit. A python called after Pythinian, this Pythinian spirit that's said to have guarded the oracle at Delphi that was slain by Apollo. It was a way, a moniker, to talk about a um, clairvoyant spirit. Verse 17, and she followed Paul and us, see Luke's writing a first-hand account now, Paul and us around crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So everywhere Paul goes, he has this anthem that follows him. I sort of imagine it like those Major League Baseball players that as they walk up to the plate, they have their theme music that plays, Okay. Only this follows Paul everywhere he goes. Can you imagine walking into a dinner party, somebody following you and saying, these men proclaim to you salvation through the most high God, okay? 
Now, let me ask you a question. Does this demon spirit have good theology or bad theology? It's not a trick question. Good theology, right? They are proclaiming to you salvation. Paul is telling you how to be saved. And if that messes with you a little bit, it does me too. I started to dig and I went, what is going on here? And I think James Montgomery Boyce maybe hit on something. He suggested that perhaps the ulterior motive was to discredit the gospel by associating it in people's minds with the occult. Now, we're not exactly sure why this demon spirit is affirming truth. They're proclaiming salvation, but nonetheless, this, this uh, young girl, possessed by this demon, follows Paul around and is a bullhorn everywhere he goes. Verse 18, and this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, I love this, having become greatly annoyed, you think, like everywhere he goes, this woman is following him turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And that very hour it came out. We call this deliverance. And I love it that it's brought on by Paul being fed up, being frustrated and thinking, can I just go anywhere without this demon spirit announcing salvation in the name of Jesus? Now, if you're thinking, Wow, Paul must have been praised for this. I mean, this little girl is free from this demonic oppression that she was under. Just keep reading, verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. See, when Paul exercised this demon, he also exercised their ability to take advantage of this girl and make money off of her. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. See, Roman citizens were not allowed to, to practice any religion that was quote-unquote alien or unsanctioned by their government. Now, they didn't have a huge issue with this until it started to affect their bottom line, until it started to affect their ability to make money. So the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they'd inflicted many blows on them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, I don't know about you, but as I'm reading through the story arc in the book of Acts of the early church, here's what we read. Paul, obedient to the divine, miraculous call of God to go into Macedonia. Paul sees God's hand move mightily, sees miracles that are taking place. God is on the move. And then Paul, beaten and thrown into jail. I don't know about you, but as I read through, that's not the story arc that I expect. What about you? It's not the story arc that I anticipate. See, what I anticipate is that when we follow God and when we're obedient, we are blessed abundantly. Who's with me? Oh, when, when we follow God, he comes through for us. I mean, don't we want to believe that God works like an equation? 
Like we do the right thing and God spits out the blessing that we're hoping for. Like we're obedient and God does exactly what we want him to do. And yet the truth of the matter is we would echo what the psalmist says in Psalm 73 verse 3 so many times. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. See, we live in a world where we see that bad things happen to good people, don't we? But we also live in a world where we see really, really good things happen to bad people. And if we're expecting God to work like an equation, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. And you may have experienced that over these last few months. You you may have had to say goodbye too early to a spouse or to a friend. You may have tithed faithfully throughout this COVID season and still lost your job. You may be praying for a spouse. You graduated college and you're going, God, please bring somebody. Please. And it just doesn't seem to be happening. You may have raised your kids in the Lord and some of them have wandered away. And you're looking back to God going, God, it doesn't feel like the equation's working. Like we put in the right variables and you're not spitting out the right outputs. God, what's going on? So what do we do when it doesn't feel like God is holding up his end of the bargain? Here's what I do. I typically grow cold. I typically shake my proverbial fist at God. I throw up my hands, I get mad, or, or, or maybe even this, I try to work my way out of it. God, maybe I just missed something along the way. So I'm going to double down, I'm going to work harder, I'm going to get it done. I, 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 I'm going to do it right, and then, then, you'll bless. I think that's normal. I, I think that's what a lot of us do. God, God when you bless, I'll praise And when you don't, I'll shake my fist. And when you don't, I'll get frustrated. And when you don't, I'll doubt. But you know what's not so new and not so normal? Look at verse 26 with me. It was about midnight and Paul and Silas were, would you just say this with me, Mount Hermon? They were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Time out. So Paul gets beaten gets thrown in jail, and he's in the stocks, and what's he doing? Singing, praising, he's praying. (laughs) I, I love this. Now, we don't get a lot of information about what Paul sang and how Paul and Silas prayed, and I think there's a reason that we don't, because if we knew exactly what they sang, we would want to package it into a master class that we could put online and tell people, hey, when you're in jail or when you're wronged, here's a song to sing, here's a prayer to pray. If you do this, God will fling wide those heavenly gates and you'll be just fine, right? We would package it and market it so we don't know exactly what they sang and what they prayed, but we do know that when Paul and Silas are thrown into jail, they don't shrink back, they fight back. But they don't fight back by clenching their fists at the Romans that threw them into jail. They begin to worship, and worship is their warfare. It is the way that they fight. 
And the principle is the same for us. When we feel beat down, when tears are flowing, when life doesn't make sense, the way that you and I engage for the battle of our soul, friends, is we fight for freedom by raising our voice in worship. We fight for freedom, the freedom of our soul, by raising our voice in worship. And see, friends, worship is more than singing a song, singing a hymn, praying a prayer. Worship is an act of holy defiance because it aligns us with the heart of our Father. It puts God in his rightful place in the throne of the universe, and it puts us in our rightful place as his dearly beloved children and servants. But worship is an act of holy defiance. As Paul stated to the church at Corinth, he said, now, in the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And when we worship, when we worship, we get to walk in freedom because God's spirit shows up. Worship, in so many ways, is our weapon as followers of Jesus. Now, as a, a father of two boys, I have seen a number of things turned into weapons in my house. Can I get an amen? I mean, some of those things I expected, you know, a stick, sure, Legos, okay, a pillow, definitely, but a cucumber? Like, really? Like, we're gonna, but my, my boys are creative in the things that they turn into weapons, and I just want you to start to think this morning about the way that God has wired you to utilize worship as one of the weapons for fighting for the freedom and health and vitality of your own soul. I love the way that the devotional writer Oswald Chambers put it when he said this, Worshiping God is the greatest essential of spiritual fitness. And in so many ways, he is echoing what the psalmist would say in Psalm 92, verse 1. The psalmist says this, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, God Most High. Now, here's the question. Who's it good for? Just raise your hand. Just raise your hand. It's good for you. It's, it's good for me. It's good for us together to lift the name of God on high. And see, whenever we encounter pain, we have a choice. Whenever we encounter frustration or hardship, we have a decision to make. We can either raise our fist or we can raise a song. We can either kneel in prayer or we can sit in protest. The choice is yours. Now, now, some of you are ahead of me and you're going, hey, Ryan, does that mean that we cannot be honest with God? Does that mean that we can't express our, our heartfelt pain to our Father? Please look up at me. Please, please don't miss this. No. That is not what that means. In fact, there is an entire book in your Bible called Lamentations, okay? But there's a difference between lament and complaining, Lament is agreeing with God about the brokenness in his world that he expresses pain and grief over. It's agreeing with him. God, this is not the way that you designed it. But instead of pushing away from our creator, lament is actually bringing our pain before his throne, agreeing with him and saying, God, 
I'm going to trust you in the midst of all of the pain and all of the brokenness and all of the junk. God, I am with you in this battle. You are still my God. So no, when you experience pain, when you experience hardship, when you experience brokenness, bring it before your God in complete and utter honesty. And I'm just struck by Paul and Silas in the middle of this jail cell, praising. So I want to answer two questions for us, and I'm going to fly through this, but I want to answer first, what do they believe about God that allows them to praise? And then I want to answer what happens as a result of their worship. So what do they believe about God that allows them to praise? Three things, three things. Here's a first conviction that they have. And Chip talked about this a little bit on morning one. But they believe that God is sovereign. They believe that God is sovereign. And here's what, here's what I don't mean by that. I don't mean that Paul and Silas believed that God was the one who threw them in jail or that God even necessarily wanted them to be there. What I mean is that they believed that God could have stopped it or prevented it if he wanted to, but for his reasons decided not to. See, here's what sovereignty means. Sovereignty does not mean that God causes everything. It means that God can do anything. And that's an important distinction. As a psalmist in Psalm 115, verse 3 would write, Our God is in the heavens. He does how much? All that pleases him. That means God has never been in the heavens and thought, You know, I really wish I could figure this problem out, but I just can't. Or, gosh, I really wish that I could move in that way, but my hands are just tied. Or, I really wish, but I just don't know what to do. God has never had those Thoughts. So here's the truth of the matter. Don't miss this. Regardless of what you are walking through today, you can trust that God is firmly on his throne. He's not wringing his hands. He's not scratching his head going, what should I do? He is God and he is sovereign and he reigns over all. That's the first conviction they have. Here's the second conviction they have that allows them to worship. They are convinced that Jesus has been victorious and he will one day fully and completely claim his victory even over death. If you believe it, say amen. amen. And see, when we worship, we recalibrate our heart to the ultimate reality of our universe and the ultimate reality of our universe is that Jesus Christ reigns supreme right now in the heavenly realms. He is worshipped and adored. The angels and saints bow down around his throne and they cry out, worthy and holy is the Lamb of God who was slain for the salvation of men. And when we worship, we reorient our hearts to remind ourselves, God, you have been victorious and you will be victorious. I can remember um, a number of years ago, my mom was really sick. She had this undiagnosed brain condition that was slowly taking her life at the age of 58. And we were sitting around in our living room at my parents' house and we just had this impromptu worship gathering as a family. It was one of the sweetest moments I've ever experienced. And I can remember we were singing the song 10,000 Reasons. And we came to that very last verse. And on that day, when my strength is failing, 
The end draws near and my time has come. Still my soul will sing your praises. 10,000 years and then, you know, forevermore forevermore. And there is this sacred, holy moment that happened amidst our family. We just sort of stopped singing, and we all made eye contact with each other, and it was this defiant decision. We will choose to praise even when something we love so dearly is being taken from us. Because we believe Jesus 10,000 years and then forever more. And then the next thing that happens, so they believe in God's sovereignty, they believe in his victory, and then I'm also convinced that they believe in his love, and that somehow, somehow, suffering gives us the ability to experience the affection of God in ways that we never would without it. Raise your hand if you've experienced this. Okay, you've experienced God's affection in the midst of suffering. And I think what happens is all the ways that we have strings attached to blessing are taken away. And in those moments, we're just stripped bare and we get the chance, the opportunity, the invitation to love God for who he is rather than simply for what he does. And so we get the chance to worship Jesus for who he is, for the fact that he has conquered sin and death and evil on our behalf. We get the chance to cling to the cross in the midst of suffering and pain and loss and remember that even though, and you may want to write this down, that remember that we may question God's plan, but we never have to question his heart. He has proven his love for us on Calvary's hill, when he took on his own shoulders sin, death, and evil itself, buried it in the ground, and walked out with new life in his hands. And if he did that for you, you can be and rest assured that he loves you. The death of a loved one doesn't nullify the cross. Cancer doesn't nullify the cross. Betrayal, abandonment, and abuse don't nullify the cross. He loves you even when, and when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you get a chance to cling to him in the midst of it all. And I'm convinced that Paul and Silas start to raise their voice in the midst of this prison because all of these, they believe all of these things. But then the question becomes, okay, well, how then does God bring freedom through worship? Great question. I'm glad you asked that. Let's keep reading. Verse 26. Verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all of the doors were opened and the, their bonds were unfastened. Time out. I want us to be careful here. I believe that we are supposed to read this as descriptive rather than prescriptive. Do you know what I mean by that? Meaning, this is what happened, but we shouldn't turn it into a formula to say, you know what? If we're in jail and we start to pray and we start to worship, then certainly God's going to send an earthquake for us and the prison doors are going to fling wide open. It's descriptive rather than prescriptive. And yet, and yet, something changes in the spiritual and physical realm when we begin to worship. 
In fact, the psalmist would write that God inhabits the praises of his people. So, I mean, God shows up in a unique way. That's Psalm 22, verse 3. Shows up in a unique way when God's people worship. Now, can we all agree that when God shows up, things change? Thank you. Over on the right. Yes, amen. When God shows up, things change. And when God's people praise, God shows up. Therefore, when God's people praise, things change. Why? Because worship releases God's power because it invites God's presence. Now, my guess is you've experienced this, but you haven't necessarily put your finger on it like this. How many of you have traveled to another country where the gospel um, hasn't taken root yet, and maybe there's even a different religion that's sort of pushing back against the gospel, and you got off the plane, and you just had this strong, visceral sense, something's off. Have you, have you experienced this? Anybody? Yeah. Um, maybe, let's get a little bit closer to home. How many of you have walked down the Vegas Strip? No hands, you don't need to put your hands up. Walked down the Vegas Strip and went, something feels dark. Something feels broken. Something feels like it's pushing against the shalom that God designed us to live in. Absolutely. Do you know why? Because worship isn't happening there and God's presence isn't manifest in the way that we are normally used to it being manifest. Now this, as followers of Jesus, you guys, this should not surprise us at all. Like this is right in our Bibles. This is a passage of scripture that we love around election time and you may even have on a mug somewhere, okay? But I think it's applicable not just for elections but for everyday life. It says this in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, okay? So there's something spiritual that's gonna happen when God's people humble themselves and pray and seek his face, something spiritual in the spiritual realm is going to happen. And he says, I will what? Heal their land. So there's going to be a physical manifestation of what happens in the spiritual realm. And you're going to see it and you're going to experience it all around you. That's huge. See, when we worship we are not just going through the motions. When we sing a song, we aren't just going through the motions. We are doing warfare. God, we long for your manifest presence in our midst, in our hearts, in our lives. Friends, if you want to change the climate of your home, worship. If you want to change the climate in your marriage, worship. If you want to change the climate in your neighborhood, worship. Worship is our weapon to say back to God, God, we long for your presence to be manifest and revealed here. And so we see, verse 26, that the bonds are unfastened, but it doesn't stop there, verse 27. It says, when the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Time out. Can we all agree? that his devotion to his job is impressive, <laughs> right? Like, he is all in, right? I had one job to do, I didn't do it, and now I am going to take myself down for it. 
Verse 28, but Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. You know who else had devotion to his job? The Apostle Paul. The jailer's job was to keep them safely. Paul's job was to love. And so even though the prison doors are flung wide open and they are free to go, love keeps them there. Why? Well, well because as they worship Jesus, they become more like Jesus who they worship. And the Jesus who they worshiped is the one who gave himself for us. He was more free than you and I will ever be, and yet he gave himself on our behalf. And so as Paul and Silas worship, they're becoming more and more like the Jesus they worship because worship shapes us into people of love because it reorients our heart. It reorients our heart. And there are, there's a lot of ways that that takes place, but let me just give you two of them and the reason that that is true. Number one is that worship, true worship, when we exalt Jesus, dethrones the idols that sometimes take hold of our heart. And that's why coming to worship on a Sunday or coming to Mount Hermon for a week is such a powerful, subversive decision to make. Because you're going, hey, instead of going on vacation here or there, we're going to go on vacation and we're going to actually feed ourselves spiritually and we're going to dethrone some of those things that have started to take root in our heart over this last few months or week or year or however long. And we are going to do warfare. It's a powerful decision, friends. And see, sin is first and foremost a problem of worship. At its core, sin is idolatry. It's putting anything on our throne other than God. And some of our main idols in our day, in our time, our sex, our success, and our safety, right? And think of it, for Paul and Silas, how easy would it have been to just say, we're going to play this safe, and we're going to walk out. Thank you, Jesus, for providing. We are gone. But worship pries our hands off of our idols, lifts our eyes onto Jesus, causes us to reaffirm him as Lord, and then to be transformed more and more into his image, to walk in his way with his heart. See, I'm convinced, friends, that we worship our way into sin and we worship our way out of sin. But the second thing that happens, so first, they dethrone their idols. Second, they remind themselves of their identity. This is who we are. We're children of the Most High God. And a number of months ago, I read um, James Clear's excellent book, Atomic Habits. And in it, he talks about the power of identity. And here's the example he gives. He says, if, if you're trying to quit smoking and somebody offers you a cigarette, don't say to them, you know what, I'm trying to quit. Say to them, no, I'm not a smoker. And he goes, that shift, that minor shift in your brain, when you start to remind yourself of who you are, is powerful in helping you change your behavior. So when we worship, we are reminded of who we are. And friends, if you've forgotten, let me just give you a quick sort of bird's eye view reminder of who you are. Here is who you are. You are a child of the most high God. 
He loves you. He knows you. He calls you by name. Your name is engraved in the palm of his hands. He rejoices over you with singing. He has forgiven you. He has washed you clean. He has redeemed you. And he rejoices over you. That's who you are. And when we worship, we remind our soul of what's deepest and most true about ourselves. And so worship shapes us into people of love because it reorients our heart. So my question for you is how might it reorient yours? When we sing these songs, I will build my life upon your love. These aren't just words. You're going to God saying, God, am I doing that? God, is that true of me? And if it's not, God, I want that to be true. Here's the final movement. Verse 29. The jailer called for the lights and rushed in with trembling and fear, and he fell down before Paul and Silas, and they brought them out, and, and he said, I love this, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And here's the connection, friends. I, I love this. Radical obedience to Jesus always creates a platform to share the gospel. Radical obedience always creates a platform to share the gospel. And that's what, exactly what they do, verse 31. And he, he said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. I believe that that's the most succinct gospel presentation we have in the scriptures. Verse 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord and said to the, all who were there, and to his house. He took them in the same hour of the night. He washed their wounds and was baptized at once, he and his family, and he brought them into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire house that they had believed in God. I love this picture of Paul, even in the midst of jail, saying, God, I want your good news to go out. I want your good news to be unhinged even though I'm in chains. And this is Paul's echo all throughout his life. I mean, listen to what he writes to the church in Ephesus from a jail cell. He says, pray for me also that words will be given to me that in the opening of my mouth I may boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And don't you love that Paul's prayer request from jail is not, would you pray that I get out of jail? His prayer request from jail is pray that the gospel continues to move forward. And here's what he's teaching us, friends, is that worship opens the door for evangelism because it amplifies our message that Jesus is Lord. See, I think the other jailer, the people in jail are listening into this worship and they're thinking, if God is worthy of praise in jail, he's worthy of praise, period. And they're right. And they're right. Man, there are a number of worship wars that go on in churches. Can I get an amen, Philip? And there's a discussion that has gone on in the church for the last few decades. What's the, what's the corporate worship gathering for? Is it for evangelism or is it for discipleship? Is it for worship or is it to connect with unbelievers and help them be drawn in. And here's what I want to say. You don't have to make a decision between those two things. 
Because if unbelievers, see believers, genuinely worshiping Jesus, they will be drawn to him. And the invitation whenever we worship is not, this is my God and this is my thing and this is all about me. The invitation we, whenever we worship is to look at those around us and say, sing along. Like, join in the anthem of heaven. Sing a song that will never end, that you can give your whole life through. Genuine worship is evangelistic at its core. And I don't know, friends, I am praying for a worshiping generation that will rise up and result in an evangelistically effective generation for the glory of Jesus. Because worship is about so much more than singing. It's about fighting for the health of our soul. The year was 1940 when Steinway and Sons got contacted by the U.S. government. See, during World War II, they'd stopped making pianos because there wasn't much of a need. They'd focused more on things that would be effective during war. But in the early 1940s, they were contacted by the U.S. government, and the U.S. government asked Steinway and Sons to prototype a, a smaller piano that they could get overseas to soldiers. They did. 455 pounds. They called them victory verticals. That's what they were called. And what they would do is they would fly these victory verticals over enemy lines and with a parachute attached to it, they would drop a piano in the middle of the war. They did this 2,500 times. So our soldiers in World War II would gather around pianos and they would sing at night. And when someone was asked, why in the world would you do that? It doesn't seem like a great use of money or resources. It just seems like a luxury. Aren't there more important things to be doing? Here's what they said. Music is an excellent way to keep men from going insane from the horrors of war and from homesickness. And these pianos played an important role in this front, providing soldiers with countless hours of diversion, education, entertainment, and worship. And worship. And so here's my question for you today. I'm wondering, is anybody walking through a season where you need to drop a piano in the middle of it? You need to say, God, I'm going to choose to worship. I'm going to choose to praise, even if it's through tears, even if it's through gritted teeth and clenched fists. God, I'm going to choose to remember that you are sovereign, that you love me, that you're good, that you're in control, that you're ultimately victorious. God, I am going to choose to praise in the middle of the storm. I'm going to drop a piano in the middle of this situation, and I am going to raise my fist, not to fight against you, but to fight for the health of my soul by worshiping you. So I'm going to invite you. Praise God. Praise God. Um, I want to call you. I think you should have a playlist on your phone that's entitled Fight Songs. Fight Songs. And you just load it up. And when you start to doubt God's grace to you, play Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Like me. And, And no offense, like you. God's great. Your grace is amazing. When you start to doubt God's love for you, and can it be 
Oh, Lord, can it be that you would love me to that extent? If you're struggling to see his goodness, sing, oh, the goodness of God, surely your goodness is running after me today in the darkness, in the pain, in the hurt, in the sorrow. If it's a tough season, sing, I will raise a hallelujah in the middle of the storm. I am going to praise you. And maybe, just maybe, if you're walking through a difficult season, can I implore you, set your alarm 15 to 30 minutes early and just let worship roll over you. You do know that Philip and his band don't need to be present for you to have a worship service. You don't need to be at church on a Sunday to worship. You can do this any moment of any day. It doesn't even take music to do it. Let your soul rise in praise to the God who gave his life for you. See, friends, worship is one of the ways that we engage in the fight for our souls. Worship is warfare. Worship is our weapon. It is our weapon. You may not feel like doing it, but I assure you, your soul needs it. And Jesus is worthy of it. And when you do, God will meet you and he will bring freedom. He always does. So what if when we were blessed, we praised? And what if when we were walking through seasons of hardship, we praised? Let's pray. I just want to invite you, if, if you're in a season right now and you're going, yeah, God, that's for me. I, I feel like I'm in a, a dark season. It's just a struggle for whatever reason. Would you just, would you be bold enough willing and willing to raise your hand? I just want to pray for you. I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. God sees you right on, right on. Lord, I pray over these people. God, as they've come up to this mountaintop and it may feel like while their feet are on the mountaintop, their soul is in the valley. And Lord, I pray that your truth would start to sink in even deeper. God, that there'd be an anchor for their soul, a hope that transcends circumstances. That you would give them the energy to worship even in the midst of the storm. And God, that in their worship, you might move and you might work to change them, the circumstances around them. God, to share the goodness of your love wider and wider and wider. Lord, help us to be people. Help everybody in this space. Would you allow us to be the kind of people who worship you even when, even when life is difficult, remembering that you have proven your love for us on the cross and that you are good to us even in the darkest seasons. You're worthy. You're worthy of all the worship, all the glory, and all the praise. So we give it all to you on the mountaintop and in the valley low. Amen. Amen.